In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And Father, we know that You spoke light into existence there. We yet again would ask that You would give light. This time, not physical light. It's bright enough in here. We have enough fluorescent bulbs. But that You would give spiritual light. Light to Your Word that we would understand it. Light to Your Word that we would apply it. Light to Your Word that we would see Your glory. Light to Your Word that we may see ourselves. Give life and light, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Beginning a series on Genesis, it's the perfect month for it just because of what's happened. Kind of world news, local news in the last month, right? You may not know this, a couple of weeks ago, our presbytery sent an uh, overture to the General Assembly of the PCA requesting, in essence, that we warn the entire PCA, all of the presbyteries, all of the churches, all of the ruling and teaching elders and deacons about the dangers of the false teachings in our current world regarding creation, specifically evolution, specifically that Adam and Eve did not exist, and a couple of other things, just... Broad picture warning, now realistically, that's only going to impact a really small portion of the world. It may not even make it through General Assembly, and that's okay, I understand that. Even more so has been the last week with the debate between Bill Nye, the science guy, and Ken Ham. Some of you know about that, some of you don't. If you don't, you should. It was very good. For those that are under 35 years old, Bill Nye equals science. Right? He is science. He is living, breathing, walking embodiment of science. He ran a uh, children's television show in the early 90s for five years, I think it was, where he taught elementary students science. He is Mr. Science. But he also is Mr. Agnostic about Christianity and God's even existence at all. I'm going to be agnostic and say agnostic and just be a little bit charitable to him. But this debate got sparked through some of his interesting comments regarding Christianity. Uh, he said, uh, I don't have his exact words, I'm kind of paraphrasing that creationism is the single greatest threat to the American economy and the success and that what the Bible teaches, the, the you know, six days of creation, uh, is teaching our children that falls just short of child abuse. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he didn't use the word abuse. He implied it in every single way possible. And so uh, the uh, <clears throat> Answers in Genesis helped set up a, a debate between uh, Bill Nye, Mr. Science, Mr. Evolution, Mr. The Bible is wrong, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe in God, any of those things, and Ken Ham, who is uh, the head of Answers in Genesis, also a doctor, a brilliant guy, um, a good guy. And uh, they debated, it was run by, uh, moderated by a CNN um, a news anchor who did a great job. Uh, but it was interesting as they're beginning to talk about that, uh, Bill Nye is on the record as saying, you know, look, people are giving me grief because I don't have a PhD in uh, biology or evolutionary biology or any of those things. The problem is, is that I don't need that. We're not going to be debating PhD level science. 
We're not going to be debating college science. We're not going to be debating middle school science. We're not going to be debating elementary science because Christians that hold this view cannot be scientists. And if you watch the debate, he repeatedly, repeatedly drew this imaginary line in the sand between those who hold creation and science. This amazing debate. I would encourage you to go. Uh, it's on uh, debatelive.org. You can still watch the whole thing. It's about two and a half hours, and it's actually fascinating. Ken Ham did a brilliant job uh, being kind of short and pithy and kind of uh, answering. My favorite part of the whole thing, now granted I have nerdy pastor humor, which is terrible, and I'm aware of that. But when somebody asked a, a question comes to Bill Nye, the science guy from the uh, audience, and uh, asks him in essence, well, where did matter come from prior to the Big Bang? You know, where did that stuff come from? Now, if they'd ask Stephen Hawking, he has an answer for that, but Bill Nye didn't. And his answer was, in essence, I, I don't know. There's no way we can really measure what happened prior to the Big Bang, so we don't know what happened, what was there before it. We know what happened at the Big Bang and after, but we don't know what's before it because we can't measure it, so we don't know. And uh, Ken Ham's given 60 seconds to respond and leads with one of his customary jokes, but he says, you know, Bill, there is a book for that. You know, and the whole place started laughing because they realized he's talking about the Bible. You know, look, you can either go to the book of science and try to figure out what's taking place prior to the Big Bang and all these different things, or you can go to the one who watched it. And how do we know he watched it? Because he's the one who did it. He's the one who spoke creation into existence. He's the one who formed Adam from the dust and Eve from the rib. He's the one who thought of zebras and aardvarks and armadillos and all of the different types of trees. He's the one who did all of it. We go to his testimony. And so, in the spirit of Ken Ham, and rightly so, there is a book for that. And we go to it called the Bible. Now, as we begin here in Genesis... You have to understand this first sentence functions as a thesis statement for this section, functions as a thesis statement for this book, and functions ultimately as a thesis statement for the entire Bible. Now, some of us are going, well, I haven't been in college in a handful of years, and the idea of thesis statements kind of gives me a little bit like a hot flash because I don't like writing, and that whole idea kind of makes me nervous. What's the point of a thesis statement? Well, it's to introduce and explain the main theme. So here, just at the very beginning, the first kind of verse and what little bit follows it, we get the introduction of the main players, we get the stage set, and it gives us the first taste of the entire theme of the Scriptures. That God is, and everything else is secondary. We get to see it from the very, very beginning. All right, so for first point, point one, and I'm going to go very quickly on these. We're going to have a half an hour sermon condensed very, very quickly. First point is that this is God's story. Notice how this starts. I mean, you're talking the first explanation of who God is in human history. The first record, like if you're going to read cover to cover, this is where the whole story begins. And guess what? It doesn't start with me. It doesn't start with people. It doesn't start with the most intelligent and educated, you know, just excellent people. It doesn't start with the beautiful. It doesn't start with the gifted. It starts with God. In the beginning, God. And you're going to actually track as we would read through this chapter if we're reading through it from the very beginning through. You notice he's the subject of all of the verbs here. God created. 
God's hovering, God's speaking, God's approving, God's speaking, God's creating, God's... God is the actor. He is the subject of the story. It's his story, not mine. Now, I get written into it later, and all these pages are about me, but it's his story first and foremost. Well, why is that an important thing for us to understand? Well, because we live in the era of postmodernism, and everything is about me. I mean, really, I'm the last generation of Gen X. I was born in 1979, and literally I fit by the last year. And Gen X is notorious for thinking everything's about me, which is really interesting because they're really just building on what the baby boomers kind of pioneered in that regard. But to define my world as being, I'm the center of it. No longer do we believe the earth is the center of the kind of universe or the sun the center of the solar system. It's all about me. And it's interesting, the very book begins at the very beginning. Look, it's not. This is not your story. You're not in charge of this story. It's not your will that's affecting it. It's not your will that's impacting it. It's not your ability to choose to change your reality. This is God's story. It is first and foremost His. And the second thing that you see is that as it begins as His story, as He begins to tell what He is doing, as it begins to tell what He is accomplishing, you begin to see that He is completely different than creation. There's all kinds of words you could put on that. Holiness, transcendent, other, different, whatever you want. But that God is not like His creation. First, you see His eternal existence. Now this is cool. Verse 1. I mean, we kind of blow over this because we've read this passage about every year when we start reading the Bible through and they get stuck like three weeks from now. Uh, We've read this passage probably more than most. We kind of blow over. In the beginning, God created everything. Prior to everything existing, God did. Well, if you kind of stop and unpack that statement for a little bit. I mean, we all kind of cognitively understand, well, prior to my existence, God was here. Okay, I get that. But you have to go further than that and say, prior to people, God was. Well, okay, I can kind of get that. Prior to planets, okay, I can kind of get that. Prior to place, uh oh, I can't get that. Prior to time, God was. You're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. So, you mean the timeline, like I was taught in elementary school, like third grade, where timelines go in both directions infinitely? That's not actually accurate. Timelines start at one point and continue the other way infinitely, but there was a starting point to time. And prior to its creation, guess what? God was, is, will be, because there's no time. We as creatures view everything through the concept of space, place, person, here, I'm in this place. Prior to the invention, the creation of place, God was. And I've told you the story before of my friend who's colorblind, and when he goes to the beach, he sees he's all he's grayscale colorblind. He can't see any color at all. He watches the waves crash, and then he looks right above the waves, and he can't see anything else until he sees the buildings behind him. There's no horizon. Think about that for a second. As a human being, have you ever been in a situation where you've seen no horizon? No, you've actually never been in that circumstance. We always see a horizon. Guess what? He doesn't like the beach. It makes him seasick, it makes him nauseated, it makes him feel unpleasant because he doesn't feel right because we exist inside place and that is like a place from the fifth dimension where it's not supposed to exist. 
a place where earth stops right there. He can't handle it. His brain can't process it. God existed prior to place. It's interesting too that you know Hebrew it didn't have the, they don't have a single word to say the universe everything but what they say here is this incredibly comprehensive term God created the heavens and the earth the visible and the invisible the things that are seen the things that are not everything now including in that term some things that we just kind of assume are always there he invented and created energy it didn't exist. Energy wasn't there. He invented and created time and space, matter, atoms, electrons, neutrons, protons, quarks, the Higgs boson, if it actually exists. He creates all of these things in this comprehensive term. And it's amazing how much we actually take this for granted, even inside the church. Right? We tend to think about the world in which we exist. We tend to think about it like Magellan and not the explorers that came before him. Right? Magellan sailed the entire circumference of the globe. First one to do that documented that we know of that they think now is not accurate, but whatever. We tend to think about our universe the same way. And that everything just kind of keeps on expanding infinitely all to the ends of the earth. And that this stuff, this matter, this place kind of continues forever. <sighs> We tend to think that things will always continue the same. We tend to think, put it in theological terms, that matter is infinite and eternal. Right? We tend to think it that way, don't we? That we send a satellite out to the ends of space, it will just continue forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we forget that's not the case because God's the only one that's infinite. Space has an end. It has walls where it stops. Ironically, Stephen Hawking's held that view for 10 years, joining with the theologians who've gone before. You know, the formation of matter. We tend to just assume things are always here. They've always been the same. They're always going to continue. That lie that works into our subconscious. That things will always be the same, and they'll always be like this. It's small. It's safe. And you know what? It sounds shockingly like the pagans prior to the flood. It's never flooded before. Why would it do it now? This is the world in which we live. All right, you see, not just his eternal existence, that God is bigger and greater and previous and kind of all this, but he's, he's more powerful. He's different from his creation because he creates the entire thing, not with his hands, like the sculptor, not with his mind, like a graphic artist having to use their, you know, their mind with a, a computer and a mouse. Or he, he speaks it into existence. His word is so powerful that he just speaks and things happen. I mean, what type of power is that? To be able to make something out of nothing, ex nihilo, just by the word of your power. Now, this is one of those kind of lasting legacies that we have of democracy. Democracy is a wonderful gift, right? It's one of the best forms of government. It's amazing. It carries tremendous pros and cons. And uh, democracy has a very small set of cons compared to many other forms of government. But one of those cons that is attached to democracy is the idea that we've lost a sense of power. 
because it is instilled at Americans from this big that you are just as powerful as anybody else. You can do anything you set your mind to. You can be whatever you want to be. You want to be an astronaut, even though they don't exist anymore? You can go be an astronaut. That's fine. You can do whatever you want to do. Your voice is just as valid as somebody else's. Your vote is just as much as anybody else's. You're all equal. That's absolutely a lie. Just for the record, you may not figure that out. It's a lie. But because of that, one of those lasting legacies that many in the West have forgotten what true power looks like and feels like. And this is one of those areas where I sat and thought about, like, what type of illustration do you give to can, like, convey what real power is like? Like being in the presence of real power. Like, well, you use royalty. We can't relate to that. To, for us, royalty is more of like a celebrity or a social joke. And I was like, well, then you can use celebrity. That's not powerful. That's fame. That's different. We don't actually understand. We, we lose sight because we just don't have a category in our heads of what it's like to be around real power. I had a roommate, um, youngest of four brothers, uh, the oldest two have like PhDs in physics from like Yale and I mean, uber brains, top minds, like world-class brains. My roommate was the youngest and a bit of the kind of wild stallion of the four of them. Um, but in terms of social interaction, one of the most powerful people I've ever met. Uh, he was one of, like I said, one of my roommates and he was absolutely devious and unbearably difficult to live with, but he it did have perks. He would come into my room at like, you know, one in the morning and be like, dude, I'm hungry. Let's, let's, uh, let's get something to eat. <laughs> living up at the top of Covenant College on top of Lookout Mountain. It's 20 minutes each way. I'm like, uh, I'm not going to get food. And you're not taking my car to go get food. Like, we're, food's not an option now. I don't have anything to eat. I know you don't have anything to eat. We're not, no, food's not an option. It's like, we'll have food. And he would walk out. I watched him do this at least a dozen times where he would go up and down the halls until he found the room with the largest number of guys in it. And then he would walk into the room he would convince them that they were all hungry. He would convince them that they were all so hungry that they needed to go get food right now. In fact, so hungry they needed to go down to the bottom of the mountain to go get food. And in fact, they were so hungry that they couldn't even wait for him to go. And then he would convince them to go without him and to bring him food. And then he would convince them to pay for his food. And so he would come back into my room 15 minutes later and say, food will be here in 20 minutes. I'd be like, what did you do? He would, just, he would just grin. 30 minutes later, our food would show up. I kid you not, I mean, dozens of times. We, we actually lovingly called him the Antichrist because of his ability to just manipulate people. Now, me being a very, very strong introvert and very quiet in high school, I had never seen another person able to manipulate human beings with such effectiveness. And I mean, my roommates and I, the other roommates, we would all just kind of, our jaws would drop and go, the level of power that this man has over other people is terrifying. I'm not used to seeing people with such success at just doing whatever they want. That's power. And he does not use it for good. Thus the loving name, the Antichrist. And by loving, I mean sarcastic. We've lost the idea of really what power looks like and how it's absolutely a terrifying thing when we see it. And you remember, in all throughout the Gospels, when Jesus actually shows power, like really shows power, the response from the men and women that are there is usually not positive. He stills the wind and the waves, and what happens? 
they get scared of him. The storm was scary. No, he's scary. He sends the demons out into the pigs. The town flips out and asks him to leave because they're not comfortable because power is so different. It's so big. It's so great. We try to turn God into some divine superman as opposed to understanding the greatness of his power. He speaks and it happens. You look at how we as Christians treat him and you understand we don't see God as powerful. I'll give you illustrations. If you're in the presence of somebody really, really powerful, do you talk back to him? I mean, do you, do you talk back to him? No, you don't. You don't. You don't. You don't talk back to a person of genuine power. You don't do that. That's ludicrous. Do we talk back to God? Shouldn't. That's right. We do, though. Do we grumble? Do we complain? Do we disrespect him? Do we say, well, his power is real. I mean, it's great and all, but it's not that great. I mean, really, he doesn't actually know what he's doing. When he tells me to behave a certain way, he doesn't actually know what he's doing. Well, we do that all the time. How disrespectful is that? I mean, can you imagine, like, in the military, a private speaking to a general in such a way? Right? Our military people in here know that's not going to end well, right? That's not a conversation that's going to be a positive resolution. It's not going to go well. All right, lastly, in terms of seeing the difference between God and his creatures, is you see that he's unbearably complicated. You see the Trinity even here. Now, you don't see it as clearly until you get the New Testament to kind of process it. But you have in the beginning the Father creating. You have this Spirit hovering and uh, moving over the waters, and you have the Son in the Word, which we understand from John 1 is the Son being present in creation. You have this amazingly complex God. In the beginning, God, that's actually plural. Elohim, plural, created, singular. This amazingly complicated God that we don't understand until later is Trinitarian. One God, three persons, three persons, one God, not three gods, not one person. This amazingly complex God that we creatures can't even understand except for how he tells us. We have to meet him on his terms, not ours. Well, okay, so what do we do with this? I mean, this is cool and all. I mean, we just talked through a couple verses. It's neat. God's big. God's strong. I get those things. What do I do with this? Well, it should be a call for us to kind of refocus, to remember how we interact with him. And I'll put it a little different way. We here in the West tend to do a very good job of understanding Jesus as my friend, and we tend to do a very good job of understanding God as my father, right? Most of us have great daddies, great fathers, and so we understand the father concept well because we love ours, and it's easy. And we tend to understand the Jesus is my friend thing easily because many of us have been blessed with great friends. But we sometimes forget the creator-creature distinction. And when you forget that distinction, it allows for all kinds of things to begin to creep in. Where we begin to say things like, well, that's just not fair that God would do that. Well, that may be actually something to talk about with the Father, but guess what? The Creator can do whatever He pleases. 
If I make a bunch of ugly drawings and I don't like them and I want to destroy them, is that my prerogative? Are the drawings allowed to complain? Are they allowed to, and maybe if I try to draw pictures of myself and I don't like them, am I allowed to destroy the pictures of myself? Is that my prerogative? Am I being unfair by doing that? Am I being unjust? They're pictures of me. I'm the creator. They're the drawings. They're done. You see, even in our questions, we're beginning to assume a place that's not ours. We're beginning to try to put ourselves above this created status and put ourselves into like some sort of like, well, obviously I wasn't here until I was born, but I'm kind of close to like God. Instead of respecting him and submitting to him and viewing him as, you know what, you can do whatever you please with me because I'm your creature. Any kindness you show me is undeserved. We get entitled. Instead of being humble, we get entitled, full of self and full of pride. So should we focus on how we see God? Right? Many of us, many of us in here, I would contend, when we think about God, we see Him as being very small. Our kitchen's about to blow up. We see him as being very small. And why we see him as being very small is because we've forgotten that he made us by the word of his power. He created all that is and then formed us of the dirt. We tend to think that he formed us of solid gold. We're made from dirt. Dirt. Women, sorry, you're made from the rib of dirt. (laughs) We need to remember that. Last application is that if we begin to see God as this pre-existent as he is, powerful, eternal, amazing God, it hopefully will produce a captivated sense of awe. Captivated sense of awe. Right? Used to live in Atlanta. Nikki and I have been to the aquarium. You know, the Atlanta Aquarium is one of the biggest aquariums in the world. It's one of the most amazing aquariums in the world. And the sense of awe that adults have when they walk in there is overwhelming. Right? We, uh, one of the weddings that I did down there, the father of the group, stepfather of the groom was, anyways, ran the Atlanta Aquarium. And so we had the rehearsal dinner in the back rooms of the aquarium. And it was amazing because you're standing next to the beluga tank, and beluga whales will play games with the people there. Like I was standing there moving, and they're right behind me moving with my head, playing games with you. And there's this just amazing sense of awe, of look at what God spoke into existence. I mean, these, these creatures are wild and crazy. The sharks and the jellyfish that glow, and just the, just the, even the sea creatures, just what's in the ocean. It's captivating. And for many of us, like I've said, we've lost that sense of captivation. We've lost the sense of awe. We've lost the sense of wonder. And we've done that because we've lost our sense of God. The challenge as we begin Genesis is to contemplate that fact, confess that fact, and seek God's truth in his word that he might open our eyes again. Father, thank you for your word that you have chosen to reveal yourselves Yourself, not selves. We ask that you would uh, continue to speak to us as we come to the table, feed us, and then feed us corporately as we eat together. Fellowship meal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.